more involved with the communities as well. You said something that I want to ask you to expand on and that um, government affects um, everything in our lives and at the municipal level especially, um, often people disregard municipal politics or civic issues because they feel that um, it has so little importance and connection and really doesn't affect their, their personal lives. Um, you made a point that that's not the case and that government is very much involved at that um, at the local level. Um, what would be your argument um, for it being so much part of people's lives? Well, if you like look at all the aspects like housing, uh, sewage, these are all like under municipal government and like they it's just very uh, connected to everything you do. Like people complain about like housing not being available, but they really have to look at all the um, things that the city is trying to do to like say lower housing or expand developments in order for people to come into Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And if you can't start local, when can you change the world really? Yeah. And do you, do you all find that argument valid that, you know, local change, like change must begin locally? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So very, very salient. Um, Going back to some of the um, programming, you mentioned, Sophia, that there's um, uh, going to be a workshop or um, presentation from Check Your Head um, and a variety of other things. What do you think, obviously, you sort of have a lot of power in, in getting a sense of what people, what youth want to have at the conference. Um, what's that process been like and what do you think, what is, I'm not in high school anymore. Um, <laughs> I have a sense of what university students uh, want or don't want to an extent but um, what's on high school high schoolers minds right now I definitely think that the two biggest things would be actually getting engaged in decision making at the both municipal and provincial and federal level but also environmental sustainability it's those two the first one being just to be able to change to have an effect on all problems but sustainability concerning climate change is such a huge problem so I think it's almost its immediacy that makes it so relevant to kids my age, our age. Mm-hmm. And the getting involved in the government is the best way to start working on that. So those two are the ones I think are were definitely the most prevalent. Yeah. And Sophia had a really interesting process that I know that she worked on was the survey that she did. And I hadn't seen this at any other conferences, but she worked a lot with um, youth. I think over 100 kids participated and really gauged that interest in, in topics. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you had to hone down into environment and sustainability, um, obviously the conference hasn't happened. And by the way, what is the, it's a one day conference, is that right? It's a three day conference. It's a three day okay. conference, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, and what, what are the dates for that? I should also, we should also mention that. So the dates for the conference is actually on April 19th to 21st, so coming in about two, two weeks. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what's happening is on the 19th, is uh, that's the Thursday night, there's going to be a nice banquet with some Vancouver 411 activities happening. On the 20th, it's actually uh, um, workshops um, the whole day uh, regarding Citizen U, which is the city's anti-discrimination program. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Saturday, which is the 21st, it's a lot of the workshops that Sophia mentioned us before. Cool, yeah. right on. Um, and so out of your um, your survey some of the issues obviously environment and sustainability was the number one issue that was identified by first was youth engagement in decision making and then environmental sustainability was a close second cool what was number three number three I don't remember (laughs) I think it was the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline oh interesting right on Right on. Like, like we saw a storm the riding this past Saturday. Did you guys, were you participating in that? No, I didn't get a chance okay. to go out, but cool. the girl who does it is at P 
PW Mini, so she oh, was great. Okay, right on. Um, yeah, I think that was what a brilliant idea. And yeah. um, I, I need to talk more with people about how that went, but I assume it went quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we take a quick break um, and we'll come back and we're talking about the Youth Politic Program, which is um, a city-initiated uh, and supported program uh, bringing uh, youth um, into a conference um, program setting and um, providing um, speakers and presentations and um, right now talking with the organizers um, of, of Youth Politic this year. So we're going to take a quick break and come back and um, talk more about um, some of the broader issues that youth face in the city and, and uh, what people um, would like to see in their city. This is uh, CITR 101.9 FM. We're broadcasting from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, Canada, and you're listening on 101.9 FM, as well as 88.5 Shaw Cable and streaming live at citr.ca. And you can find updates uh, for the show at thecityfm.wordpress.com and links off of the CITR website, citr.ca. So, um, and additionally, if you are into Twitter, follow us on Twitter um, at the city on CITR, as well as Facebook. So we're going to take a quick break um, and we're going to hear a track from uh, Obiju. Um, Stay with us. This is The City. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen, and then get riding. Any UBC student knows that the year begins optimistically. In your arms But by the end of it, you're ready for a little... (laughs) Any smart UBC student will therefore know that it's best to get your tickets early to the annual AMS Block Party, featuring Mother Mother, Mastercraft, DJ Headspin, The Boom Booms, and more. Thursday, April 5th on the McKinnis Field, your AMS brings you the fifth year of music, partying, and hopefully some sunshine. Early bird tickets available at the Outpost until March 9th, and general tickets available thereafter. For more info, search for the AMS Block Party on Facebook. The fifth annual AMS Block Party is proudly sponsored by CITR. Are you walking to class? Are you grabbing a coffee? Got lunch hour to kill? We invite you to fill the silence of your day with the sound of some live music. Music on the Mind? UBC's newest student concert initiative invites the School of Music out of the concert hall into the schoolyard. Ten concerts at five venues on one campus. Let's get music on the mind at UBC. For more information, visit ubcmusiconthemind.com. Sponsored by CITR Radio, Vancouver, BC.
And that was Obiju with Echo Bay. This is CITR 101.9 FM. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. And uh, we're talking with uh, some of the youth politic organizers um, uh, program from the city of Vancouver and uh, really uh, youth-driven in terms of its programming and outreach. Um, and uh, we're here to talk um, about that. So I want to pose a question to all of you. Um, this is certainly... Um, a pivotal time in the city and um, and one that I think um, as a young person I uh, certainly want to still call myself young I, <laughs> I think that that cutoff is like 35 right so I, I can I can be young um, for a while anyway but um, then you lie about your age <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah then you just get so old that you're just like you know trying to be 10 years younger all the time but um, what are some of the issues that you really hope are addressed um, in um, in the pro in the conference, um, and that you think um, perhaps may organically kind of come out of um, the workshops and stuff that people hear, um, and what what do you hope moving forward um, people will take away from this program? Uh, well, personally, just from I really hope something gets addressed on climate change and environmental sustainability because I don't think it's something that we can wait for. Like the IPC said, by twenty seventeen, that's our cutoff time for whether the tipping point about if it if we can reverse the effects. So I hope that out of this conference we get a lot of um, initiatives grown and a lot of people thinking and talking about what can we do and setting out and doing that. So when I when I did the youth politic program in the inaugural year, um, we had a, quite a fun opportunity um, and I think eye-opening for a number of counselors. Uh, we presented some of our ideas. Um, we had like a group session um, and we kind of uh, narrowed down um, general ideas and people that were interested in those topics formed a group and then we presented to council um, in council chambers. Um, and I'm wondering if there, because you talk about we need we need action and we need action quickly on uh, things, especially like climate change. Um, what is there a component that's part like action oriented, or what um, what do you hope to see come out of this? Well, for instance, concerning action, we do have like one workshop at the VPL that for sure will have something coming out of it because yeah. the, the library is looking to completely green its system and yeah. is starting at the conference and a project they hope will boom out of the workshop. Okay. So. That's one concrete way that something will start. Cool. Any other things, issues that you hope will either spark interest or uh, maybe move to, you know, creating some local change or even more broadly inspire people on a larger scale? For myself, it's it's to do with um, our democratic process and our and our low voting turnouts. I think that that's. that's yeah. I think that's one of the key issues um, facing youth and even um, adults in our city specifically. I know on a federal level, the percentage was around 60, and I know on the municipal level, it was as low as mid-30s. So um, there's no point on creating um, a working democratic process when only 35% are participating. And uh, I think that the workshop with Apathy is Boring will mm -hmm. really address that. And I know they did some really unique techniques during the election. And uh, I hope that the kids come away is from it, the, Is it Get Your Vote On or Apathy is Boring? It's Apathy, Apathy is boring. boring. Oh, okay, because yeah. I thought they were from Montreal. They're Skyping in. Oh, so, okay, yeah. right yes. on, right on, right on. And uh, I hope that youth come out of that as leaders in, um, in talking about how much they love voting and, and moving it on to their friend groups and it spreads as something that's worthwhile in doing because that's really ultimately your loudest voice. Absolutely. Cool. Um, any other comments for... 
We're running, unfortunately, low on time. But um, do you guys, do you want to do a final round and sort of wrap up some of your thoughts or leave people with um, some thoughts about why youth politic is important and um, if uh, young people want to get involved, how they can do that? Okay, sure. So if you want to get involved, first off, you can just get to um, vancouveryouth.ca slash youthpolitik, and politic ends with a K. Yep. And we're just really hoping that at this conference, youth are going to see what's out there in the city and find something that they love and just start going for it. And that's basically what I really hope will happen personally. Right on. And and just as Sophia said, that um, that it all starts with going to vancouveryouth.ca slash youthpolitik and uh, registration is closing um, by the end of this week, but it'll remain open for a few more days to get some people who may have heard this a little bit later. And uh, I hope that youth, even if they don't know what they're interested in, come and learn as much as they can. And if they go out of that and uh, they have met like-minded teens, I think anything is possible. And I think that even if it doesn't have to do with the workshops, I think that it's a worthwhile experience for anyone to to, to come and do. And uh, definitely just keep in mind that the dates are April 19th to 21st. So that's a Thursday, Friday, and a Saturday. And it's taking place at Vancouver Technical Secondary School this year, with the Thursday night being a banquet and the Friday and the Saturday being workshops all day. If you don't know how to get to Van Tech, Secondary school, it's just off Broadway and Nanaimo. Cool. And uh, so, when are you guys all, when are you running for school board or council or parks <laughs> board? When's that happening? Uh, I think parks you board have my vote. has the lowest uh, age at which you can start, so that's where we go start. for it. Yeah. We're doing a triple team 2015. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sweep City Hall. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for coming um, into the studio, and it's a bit of a trek up here to UBC, but. Um, this sounds really fabulous, and I've um, been talking um, with the Youth Politic Program, and uh, I think we're going to do a bit of um, collaboration and actually talk with some of the participants and um, play some of that on air. So um, I see this as a conversation that is still continuing and uh, a dialogue um, that uh, I hope continues in many different uh, ways. So again, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck with the final push for organizing. Okay, thank, thank you, you for so having much. us. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us on. Absolutely. This is the city on CITR 101.9 FM, and we're going to go to a clip from uh, Luis uh, Villegas, who is an urban designer, and I apologize if I'm getting his last name uh, wrong, pronounced wrong, um, but he's talking at a RAMP event, a Residents Association of Mount Pleasant event that was organized um, last month on how to build density without building towers. Um, so we're going to go to that clip uh, very shortly um, for the remainder of the show. Um, and again, you're listening on your FM dial at 101.9 FM and uh, streaming at citr.ca. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we're going to go to that clip uh, very shortly. Can you imagine an oil spill on our coast? Enbridge and Kinder Morgan are proposing pipelines that would bring oil supertankers to the coast of the Great Bear Rainforest and expand tanker traffic through Vancouver's harbor. On March 26th, stand up for an oil-free coast at a noon hour rally featuring First Nations leaders Bill McKibben and more. March 26th, 12 noon at the Vancouver Art Gallery. We've gone a little condo crazy in Vancouver for the last 20 years or so. And while towers uh, can work downtown, I think that when we come to the neighborhoods, 
and when we come to the historic neighborhoods, um, it's time to strike out in a new direction. We've known since 1950s and the 1960s that towers uh, destroy neighborhood fabric. We've known that towers in neighborhoods um, don't meet, meet the existing character of these places. Uh, and that for that reason, um, we should be looking at different models. Here's an example from St. Louis, a very famous example, the Food Ico uh, social housing project that went up in um, 1956. You can imagine that if you were a person living in this row house and you used to make a habit of going um, over here to have your hair cut perhaps on a Saturday morning and you used to walk through the neighborhood and maybe stop by and visit a friend and make a date to come back and have a coffee later, uh, once these towers went up, uh, you would never be able to walk that way again. You would have to find another way. Uh, when these things, uh, the sustainability of this project lasted exactly 15 years. And when they came down in 1971, they became the sort of the poster child for postmodernism and for a growing awareness that we really have to change the way that we went about planning our cities. The modern urbanism wasn't working and we had to find a new way around it. <laughs> The way that I look at it now is that in the city of Vancouver, we are still stuck in an old planning paradigm. And the indications that I have of that is that we seem to be looking for the right things in the wrong places. I didn't sign up for a live show. So for example, we measure density one building site at a time. Or when we go to uh, correct some of the problems on our street, the zoning bylaw puts the emphasis on the design of the buildings and there's not much said about the design of the streets themselves. Or when we look at the planning process itself and the discussion comes around to consensus-based decision-making, that discussion happens in the implementation stages of the plan rather than the beginning of the planning process when the principles are being set down. find my computer with a slicker. <laughs> All right, there we go. So we're standing on 62nd Street at night. On the horizon, you can see the, Canby, uh, the Knight Street Bridge, which was completed in 1970. It's now totally clogged up with traffic in the morning rush hour and in the afternoon rush hour. It's only a matter of time before the Portman Bridge Gateway Bridge, which is still under construction, is going to be clogged up twice a day during the morning rush hour and the afternoon rush hour. And one of the things that I began to think about is that these bridges are gigantic government investments. This is um, money coming in from the federal and provincial levels being invested in these neighborhoods and communities to help us grow. And yet, when you look around the street like Knight Street, which has 66,000 cars a day, the first thing that you realize is that this gigantic investment of government capital has had the unwanted result of actually lowering the value of the properties fronting. So these little buildings that we see on Knight Street, which are actually not unlike the kind of buildings that can give us that density that we're looking for. They have doors on the street, they have a front door yard. In the case of this building, there's a parking lot behind it, but you can see how you could design it with a rear garden 
It's two and a half stories high. We could probably add another story on top of it with maybe a sloping roof and then some gables and so on and get to the right density. But the lawn is not taken care of. There's no sign that the outside of the building is being used. And the reason is very clear. It's all that traffic that is making that particular building unlivable. If we pan a little bit more up the street, what we'll see is the um, more typical condition along Vancouver's arterials, which is arterials with high volumes of traffic fronted by single family residential houses. In this case, the houses are take the side of the lot to the arterial, the more typical case is that the front of the house fronts the arterial. And we can measure in these places the effects of traffic noise and traffic pollution because both of those things are point sources so that it, they, they sort of um, they behave according to the inverse square law. So that if you wanted to have half as much noise or half as much pollution as the house that's fronting the arterial, you would have to move four times further away. So let's um, go down the street and start counting to see how far we have to go before we see some change in these buildings. And the first house and the second house, the third house starts to change and by the fourth house, which is the one behind the white car that's on the street, we can see that the neighborhood is receiving investment. We can see that people are beginning to put in money to add value to their property. But for the first three or four lots, the properties have been let go. They've fallen into uh, the sort of the lower echelon of the market, and they're seriously impacted by traffic and by noise. If you wanted to have one quarter of the amount of noise and pollution that the house fronting the street has, in this particular case, you'd have to move to the next block because you'd have to be 16 houses away and this block only has 15 houses. In about 2009, I did a study of these arterials and I followed um, the, the, the mark and I marked them up using this uh, particular scheme. Whenever there were house lots on both sides of the arterial, I used uh, dots in the sequence, yellow dots in the sequence. If the uh, house lots were only on one side of the arterial and the other side didn't have house lots, then I spread the lots a little bit further apart. And in cases like the one that we just saw, which was the side of the lot that fronted the arterial, I showed it with uh, white space dots like this. If it had been built out already, then I put a straight line through it. In front of parks, we'll see green, in front of, uh, in, along commercial strips, we'll see blue. And I didn't do the east-west arterial, so they remained as red lines. And what you can see emerging throughout Vancouver is that it's chock full of opportunity for this kind of redevelopment. If you start looking at our arterial streets and identifying which ones have single-family cottages on them, well, it's all over the place. When we then did a measurement to see how much density we could actually add, we calculated that we could double the city population simply by impacting those single-family residential lots on both the north-south and the east-west arterials. Now those two little red-white circles in there, not the CIA looking back at you, those are what I call pedestrian sheds. It's a measure of neighborhood size, and I'm gonna be a little bit more specific about it. If you look at a satellite uh, view of the north part of the city along Burrard Inlet, you can get an immediate sense for the complexity of urbanism and also its sheer scale. So one of the problems that immediately confronts us is how is that we're going to handle this? And traditionally, the way this has been handled is with by taking the distance that we normally walk in five minutes and using that as a sort of human measurement 
of, of, of urban space. If you take it, it's, we walk about 400 meters or a quarter mile in five minutes. And if you take that and use it as a radius to inscribe a circle, then you end up with an area that measures 120 meters. And I call that the walkable neighborhood or the Cartier. And we can draw that circle at the same scale as the aerial photograph. And if we put one over by the P&E, then you can see that in that area, which is mostly single-family residential, we would be housing approximately 3,500 people. And if we take another one of those Cartiers and we overlap it on the North Shore of Wall Street where there are towers, then we can house somewhere in the neighborhood of 26,500. And the question I pose is where is the middle? Is there a way that we can achieve high density and not have to build towers? Because what I've always heard from City Hall is that high density requires high buildings. And I know for a fact that that is a fact. So in an effort to um, find some of these neighborhoods that have high density, have human scale, and have high quality, I contacted some of my colleagues from across the nation and I asked them where are the best neighborhoods in Canada. And they told me, and the answers came back from Quebec and from Ontario and from the Maritimes and so on. So I'm going to take you on a slideshow through some of these neighborhoods and I'm going to document for you in each case what the density is and what some of the characteristics of the neighborhood are that stand out. But before we leave, we're going to stop at the local shrine and pay our respects to the Vancouver Special. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I have some volunteers. Uh, it is beyond me why this two-story stucco box gets so much critical attention. Okay, basically it's a suburban building type. Uh, with a suite on the bottom, it will house roughly 12 units to the acre. We'll get about 7,500 people in that, uh, sorry, 3,500 people in that neighborhood. But when you stop to look at it, it has some characteristics about it that are interesting. It is incremental. It doesn't require land assembly. It is fee simple. There's no strategy involved. It puts a door on the street, which is good for defensible space. It has the ability to have a, a, a suite in it, which is a mortgage helper for the owner. But from the point of view of the neighborhood, it's also affordable rental housing. Um, it has a rear garden and a, and, a, and, a back, and a front garden so that the units are connected to the ground. Rear lane access for recycling is garbage and, and cars. It can park about four cars, two on the street, two off the street. And I think importantly, it has human scale. So with those kinds of ideas in mind, let's uh, head out on a little trip and we'll start in Montreal. And I think it's important to state from the beginning that if we're looking for something that is not a tower neighborhood and something that is not a suburban neighborhood, then it's going to look a little bit different than those two other places. Now here in Montreal, the density that we get is 80 units to the acre, 21,000 people per Cartier, which is about 80% of the tower density. So I consider this to be an equivalent density to tower neighborhoods. And it's done with buildings that are just three and a half stories high. Okay, and the Montreal example is really interesting. You see these doors here? Those would be doors into the unit at the bottom of this typical three-story building. Then there's an exterior stair with an exterior balcony typically done in iron. 
in a place where there's snow and ice. And you go up that little stair, and there's two doors. And the first door gets you into the unit in the middle floor. And as it was described to me, you open the second door, and boom, there's another flight of stairs that takes you up to the third story unit. And the entire Montreal in the 19th century was built out of buildings just like that. And they're still working today. The next stop is uh, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. The buildings are a little bit shorter. This is two and a half story to three story houses. They're built out of brick or they're built out of wood. Uh, with a smaller size comes a slightly lesser density, 60 units to the acre, maybe 16,500 per Cartier. But the same characteristics are in place. There's a front door garden. The windows look out on the sidewalks. There's direct access to the street. And there's a kind of a character that grows from having all of the buildings performing in this way in the urban landscape. Moving right along, um, I think our next stop is a salt box building in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. It's actually a building type that comes to Nova Scotia from Newfoundland, where I haven't gotten there yet. And you can see that in this building there are two doors, so it suggests that there might be a suite on the main floor, and perhaps there's a suite above that. And uh, in, in the case of the door over here in the basement, uh, it signals that it's probably not an original basement because these houses have dry late stone, and I'm told the basements are not inhabitable if they are the original. But again, the real winner is sort of the character of the place. Small lots, small buildings, walkable streets, a knowable neighborhood. Toronto, uh, the poor neighborhood of Toronto from the 1850s and 60s, cabbage town because the residents used to grow cabbages to eat. Two-story built form. Um, what am I putting there? Measurement, very precise because we had a blueprint that showed the uh, footprint of every house on CAD and we also knew the height of each house, so each building. So we were able to come up with a very precise measurement here for a two-story row house uh, with a 50-foot right-of-way in front of it, no rear lane. Complaint from Cabbage Town, the people that live there say they can't do the gardening in the front door yards. Reason, neighbors keep dropping by to talk to them. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that we want to build. That's a good thing. Um, Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1917, there was that munition ship that blew in the harbor. 1,500 people were killed, 9,000 were uh, injured. The thing blew the whole side of the hill away and a new neighborhood was planned. And this is one of the best examples of urban design in Canada. Um, they planned it with uh, two-story row houses and semi-detached using hydrostone, which was a concrete block uh, product coming out of the United States. But they planned them with one block long boulevards between these houses. And these boulevards are between 80 and 140 feet wide, and there's still like 11 of them in a row. The city still shows up every week to mow the lawn, the chestnut trees are now 100 years old, and the place is gorgeous. And the neighbors look across to each other through these green fields. And then, of course, they have the added benefit of urban theater, because all of the other people in the neighborhood walk through the boulevards to get to the park on the other side or to go shopping. Originally, there was a streetcar at the end of the road. Now, if you want to nail the number for towers, uh, that 26,500 per Cartier, you can do it if you go to Quebec City. Here, with one and a half to four-story buildings on blocks that are one quarter the size of a typical Vancouver block, we get that kind of density. And you can also do it if you look at an example like um, the Warehouse District in Winnipeg. 
where since about the time that we did gas down, they've been doing loft housing into their warehouses and, and renovating it. And because the apartments here are between three and five stories, you can get those higher densities as well. But the remarkable thing about the warehouse district in Winnipeg is that it was plotted around the square. Market Square is there, the market's long gone, and yet everywhere you walk around in this district in Winnipeg, you don't seem to lose your way because you seem to remember where that square was left behind. A terrific kind of uh, an orientational device. Of affordability by keeping the house small and the lot small. Again, back into uh, Montreal, for these houses that net out of about 60 units to the acre, 16,000 uh, people per Cartier, um, the street is 500 feet long and 50 feet wide, and it has these sort of two-story houses. So it's the first time that we see a real clear relationship between the width of the street and the height of the building adjacent. It really works well and probably uh, more affordable than its neighbor simply by virtue of the fact that it's smaller in size. And then the square that was just about a block away from Rue Napoleon that I just showed you, uh, with this modern building that turns its back on the public space. So even in Montreal, we got some problems to overcome. And if we pan around, we see one of the other characteristics about these buildings that is particularly important or interesting to me, which is their ability to carve out little spaces in the neighborhood that support social function. Support it better, I suppose, if that building that I showed you at the beginning had doors on the street and possibly um, some restaurants out there. So even in, in Montreal, we have to go back to Paris to show them all the damn things. Um, the idea is that there should be a place in the neighborhood where you can bump into people without texting them, without having to make a phone call or send an email. You're there because you just want to hang out. In the square in Montreal, I had higher pedestrian counts on the square than I did on any of the side streets leading up to it. My conclusion was that people were simply cutting through because it was fun to do. So with all of these things under our belt, I'm ready to break out the confetti and celebrate because we found a building form that works and so let's go ahead and build it and we'll get great walkable neighbors in Vancouver and we'll be done. But there is a problem. All of these things that I've shown you, except perhaps the apartments in, in, in Winnipeg, are illegal in British Columbia and in Vancouver. And we're hearing now word from the uh, task force on affordability that we're going to take a look at this fee simple row house as a possible building to go in. We have examples in Strathcona, we have examples in um, Grandview and around Riley Park and at Hemlock and 11th, but they're the exception. And um, there's a great opportunity for, I think, in our city to uh, employ this form a little wider. To test this concept uh, with the environmental, uh, with the Institute for Environmental Learning at Simon Fraser, we did a study last year with a charrette where we applied these products to the historic neighborhoods in Vancouver, otherwise known as the downtown east side. And what we found was remarkable. We started with a metro population target for 2040 of adding an additional 140,000 people in Vancouver. And we went at it lot by lot, place by place, and started with a Cartier Center on the gate to the uh, Hastings Mill, which was the first site to develop on Burrard Inlet. And then we found once we located the first Cartier there, specifically using a drawing from Major Matthews, uh, we found that the other neighborhoods fit neatly around. 
Gastown, Chinatown, Strathcona, and a fourth Cartier that we call the industrial one, uh, all tightly fitting around there. Japantown is actually part of the center of Cartier. The population of, if you're seeing the Olympic rink, by the way, <laughs> the uh, population in, in the downtown east side is roughly around 20,000. We were able to, without demolishing a historic building, we were able to fit 35,000, uh, you know, buildings for 35,000 people. Now, this wasn't the first area that was platted in our city. Um, the Hastings town site went up uh, alongside what would become the PME. Uh, four years before the middle opened, but that area really never developed until Grandview developed uh, to, to the west of that. So it was really sort of a kind of suburban growth going that way. However, all of these car chairs, which are original in Vancouver in the sense that they were platted before the automobile and before the train arrived, um, display some characteristics that, that we found really interesting. And, um, oops, got ahead of myself. So basically, with this kind of infill, uh, the same amount of houses in Grandview that we fit on the uh, downtown east side, and maybe doubling the population of the single-family residential area, uh, we were able to generate a total of uh, 75,000, sorry, 77,500 people, but about 55% of the 2040 target and about 4% uh, of the land of Vancouver. <laughs> Back to the part that I got ahead of myself on. Uh, these Cartiers have a unique feature that they're all centered around Hastings Street functioning like an urban spine. It means that two-thirds of the people living here were within a five-minute walking distance of Hastings as a transit corridor, as a place to get um, goods and services, and a place for employment. And then there was a more regional in character, which was Main Street connecting to Bentley, connecting to The other thing that we discovered in uh, the downtown east side was that the uh, freeway was never built. We heard from many people that have participated in the demonstrations in the late 60s and early 70s that that was a major triumph. But the other thing that we discovered was that the cars came anyway. So we have this business that you have 30,000 cars on part of Venable Street, you have 15,000 cars a day on Cordoba and 15,000 on Powell and 35,000 in Hastings Street. And we wanted to, as much as possible, come up with some kind of a concrete measurement of what that did to the neighborhoods because just by being there we felt that that was one of the major problems. And we found this study from Donald Appleyard from 1980 in San Francisco where he took three streets of different uh, traffic volumes and asked the neighbors of the street to sort of plot out their daily activities. And in this diagram, the neighbors are being asked to draw a line from their front door to another front door on their street where they visit frequently or they know somebody now. And they were also asked to put in a dot on a place on the street or the sidewalk where they would do something. Sweep the sidewalk, talk to somebody, the place they chose to cross the street on, so forth and so on. And this is at 2,000 cars per day. The second street had a slightly different traffic count of 8,000, four times as much. And you can see that the lines of social uh, functioning and, and the places where they stand or, or do some activity on the street or sidewalk are decreasing. And the third site uh, had cars of about 16,000, had a traffic volume of 16,000 cars a day. And again, 
there's a dwindling relationship. There's a sort of a straight line correlation between the volume of traffic and the amount of the ability of that urban space to support social functions. They were asked uh, in the 2000 Paraday Street to draw a circle around property they felt belonged to the moon that didn't have a title to it. And many neighbors took the whole street. And at 4,000 cars per day, um, we still see the same thing happening. Uh, neighbors are claiming the street um, and, and places adjacent, but by the time you get to 16,000 cars per day, um, everybody's pretty much receded back into their houses. Maybe they use the deck, maybe they mark a window, but the street is pretty much now going to be ruled by the cars. And this is 16,000 cars a day. Our arterials are between 40 and 60,000 cars a day. So they present a major challenge. This thing is going to go. Well, you're going to show me its death. So what to do about it? What to do about it is something that Patrick Condon talks about, which is to put some mass transit on it, put some transportation. Let's put light rail on Hastings Street and let's do BRT on Main Street. It would be possible to take up all of the trips and put additional travel capacity on these streets. And because those means of, or modes of transportation take up car lanes, we would actually be removing cars from the street at the same time because there just wouldn't be any space for them. And that was Luis Villegas, an urban designer here in Vancouver, um, talking at a ramp event uh, from uh, this past March, um, arguing that we can build density without building towers. And uh, he used a number of case studies to argue that point. Um, and uh, certainly, um, I, I think certainly uh, put the notion of uh, the tower is the only way to build density um, somewhat to rest. Um, although this comes at a time when the final, um, likely the final um, rise, uh, Mount Pleasant uh, 19-story uh, condo tower uh, public hearing um, concludes tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, April 4th. Um, at uh, 7 o'clock in council chambers. So um, this was an, an event they organized um, as an alternative approach to ways to design neighborhoods and, and build density without um, uh, having to build towers, which um, by many accounts aren't necessarily um, the most effective ways to build community um, and to build affordability. So certainly um, he didn't touch specifically um, on uh, social housing and, and um, providing um, and ways to to build social housing units. Um, but I think the design aspect, um, he illustrated quite well that we can build density like Montreal and other cities um, have done this, even Toronto, um, with even, you know, maxing out at three to five stories and, and uh, being creative in ways that we um, design um, denser, more vibrant neighborhoods. So that wraps up the city uh, for uh, this um, episode. And if you have any comments, you can email me at thecity.citr at gmail.com, uh, tweet me at the city on CITR. Uh, find the city on Facebook at uh, the city on CITR. Um, you can search that um, as well as the show's website where the podcast for this show will be posted um, uh, right after um, we finish this on air um, show. So that's the cityfm.wordpress.com. And um, in saying that, we're going to go out with uh, Prophecy Sun. Um, and this is off of um, the recent release, Not For Dogs. Um, 
and uh, wish everyone a lovely Tuesday evening and uh, be talking with you again next Tuesday, 5 p.m., uh, 5 to 6 p.m. every Tuesday for the city, a show dedicated to critical urban discussions. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>